Listen to the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So reads the Word of God. Most of us would love to be spiritual heroes. By saying that, I don't mean we necessarily want to be known far and wide for our great faith. I'm not necessarily saying we want to be famous. I really just mean that I believe most of us here would desire to have great faith in God. Amen? I I thought you would agree with me on that. We'd long to be discerning of what is right and what is good and of what is true according to God's Word. And we would love to be courageous in our conformity to that word, courageous in our obedience to our Heavenly Father and to how He has communicated to us both in His living word and in His written word. I mean that we'd rather not be wishy-washy in our walk. We'd love to live lives worthy of being imitated by others, even if we're not spotlighted or singled out by others, there is something in us that would just long to live a life worthy of imitation. And worthy of imitation due to our consistent modeling of, say, the fruit of the Spirit as a good summary description of what it looks like to be a Christian. And I would have to say to those of you seated in this room and to those of you who are Uh, streaming with us on the internet, I believe many of us are living such lives. I really do. I believe this church is filled with people whose lives are worthy, worthy of imitation. I think we make sacrificial decisions in favor of what we discern to be godliness from the Word of God. I believe we speak out in proclamation of the gospel when someone needs to hear it. When there seems to be an opening for it. And I believe we also speak out in defense of the gospel when it's being attacked. I know none of us thinks we do this flawlessly, and surely we don't. And we almost always wish we had said more or less or different, right? It's only later that we come up with the perfect thing that we should have said. 
And the smiles on your faces tell me the truth of that statement. But we're at least willing to speak, most of us, when opportunities arise. But I also believe many of us genuinely wonder if we would continue doing so if it really began to cost us something. If there were economic consequences for proclaiming and defending the gospel, would we still do it? If it carried a heavy fine, if there were social consequences, if we were ostracized in our neighborhood associations, for instance, or denied service at a local restaurant, if our property were vandalized or stolen or legally seized like we read about in the believers in Hebrews 10, I think most of us wonder if we would press on in our proclamation and defense of the gospel. I believe we each wonder in the depths of our hearts whether we'd stand firm in our proclamation, whether we'd stand firm in our defense of the gospel under such circumstances. And this is not an irrelevant question, is it? Given that such things are already beginning to happen. Social consequences have already begun for proclaiming and defending the gospel. Economic consequences cannot be far behind. Legal consequences, it's entirely possible. Today's passage has a great word for us. It, it's not all peaceful and easy by any means, this text of Scripture. But it's just the word we need to hear. Just the word we need to hear when opposition and persecution are looming for us. And we really want to stand firm against it. Make no mistake, my friends, God's people will face tribulation. It's stated right here in this letter to Smyrna. That word is used. They faced it throughout the time between Jesus' first and second comings, and here He gives us what we need in order to endure that time. Again, we're going to look at this passage, and I'm going to say this morning in four stages, even though last week was three. Let me explain. We had a discussion in the preaching team this past Wednesday about whether the introductions that, to who Jesus is, the references back to chapter 1, picking up on elements of John's vision of the resurrected Christ, whether that should really stand alone as a point in the outline I was going to be using those descriptions as the completion of my introduction each Sunday, using that as the setting of the trajectory for the letter. But it really is one that could stand alone as an element that we want to pay attention to because it plays such a prominent role in each of the letters. How Jesus is identified here in the text sets the direction for the letter. He ends up being exactly what the church needs and how he identifies himself displays that. So 
We're going to make it a four-point outline instead of a three-point, and you'll see that even if you look back to last week's. I made that adjustment on the written copy of last week's notes just so that we'll see the parallels to these churches as we move through them. So the, the four points that we're going to follow this morning are, first of all, the ascription. What is ascribed to Christ? How is He identified at the beginning of each of these letters? What elements from the vision of chapter 1 are drawn upon? to describe Jesus as each letter begins. Then the assessment. This will be verse 9 in this brief letter to Smyrna. Then the assignment. The first two of the three parts of verse 10 give the assignment. And then the last clause in verse 10 along with verse 11 give the assurance. So that's the outline we'll follow. And as I mentioned, we'll follow that with each of the seven churches so that we have a kind of a record of the parallel messages that are being given here. So first the ascription, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Jesus identified himself here in that way. The first and the last who died and came to life. There's a couple of different ways we can understand and appreciate what's being said here. A lesser and a greater, I believe. The lesser first. Smyrna was a seaport city. It had been destroyed in roughly 600 B.C. It was rebuilt following the days of Alexander the Great. The image of the phoenix was therefore applied to Smyrna, that bird that rises from the ashes of its own destruction. So there's some reflection of Smyrna's history in Jesus' identification of himself, but that, I believe, is coincidental alongside of what it communicates to this church about who's talking to them right now. As we'll see, the death and the resurrection of the ever-living one, think about that. That's a phrase that could slip past us pretty quickly. The death and resurrection of the ever-living one. One, that's how Jesus identifies himself. He's the first and the last. So he's always existed. He is fully God. And yet in his flesh, he died and came to life again. So the death and the resurrection of the ever-living one will become a source of great comfort. Will become a source of great assurance to this church. In this particular circumstance that's facing, in the the season of trial that Jesus said is about to come upon them. And it will also then be a message of comfort and reassurance to all churches throughout time as they face tribulation. We made that argument last week, how we can see that it's not just to these seven churches that John has written, but in the use of that apocalyptic number seven, it's written to the the whole church. A seven-part sampling representing the whole so the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages can read these letters with merit. We can read these letters today, perhaps on the verge of persecution ourselves, and be strengthened by the word of instruction and reassurance and comfort that Jesus gives to the church at Smyrna. So there's the ascription. How about the assessment? Verse 9, Jesus continued on here. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, 
parenthetically, but you are rich. He doesn't want that thought lingering for a moment in the minds of people who are actually experiencing physical, economic poverty at the moment. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Remember, you're rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Can you think of three things you would less rather experience than what's talked about here? Tribulation, hardship, persecution, poverty as a result of that, genuine lack, lacking what you need. Todd prayed this morning with a sense of lack, an understanding of how that just grinds against the human soul and it's exhausting. And then in addition to actual tribulation and poverty, slander. Spoken evilly against, without cause. That's who Jesus is addressing here in Smyrna. However, historically, Smyrna was both a prosperous and a beautiful city. It was a rich city. It was called the ornament of Asia, the loveliest of the cities of Ionia. Some commentators said it was in constant competition with Ephesus and Pergamum for the lead city in that region. But it was an absolutely beautiful city and wealthy, opulently wealthy. Religiously, it was a pagan city, though, proud of its temple of Zeus and its temple of Sibella, and also the street of gold that connected them. It was a row of temples with these temples at each end and a literal street of gold between them. That's where this church lived. Roman emperor worship, though, was also spreading throughout Asia in those days, the latter part of the first century. Greg Beale wrote in his commentary, indeed, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of the city and often even village life. It had spread out into the countryside. So even though Christianity had earlier enjoyed a level of protection in the Roman Empire, that it, because it was perceived as being a sect within Judaism, remember studying that from the, the ruling of uh, the proconsul in Acts 18? We talked about that. It set a precedent in the Roman Empire. And as Luke told the story of the early church, it seemed like Rome was the place where the church was receiving comfort and encouragement, and the pushback was coming from the Jews. Well, by the end of the first century, those days had gone, and they were there was pushback coming from both. In fact, there seemed to be an alliance between the two to persecute the church. So even though Christianity had earlier enjoyed a level of protection because it was perceived as a sect within Judaism since the reign of Nero, that's 54 to 68 roughly in that period, persecution had heated up and now we're in the final decade of the first century, and it's kicking up again, as we mentioned last week, or two weeks ago, I believe. But in addition to this, in addition to the persecution coming from Rome, the Jews would have had no trouble at all in at least accusing Christians of not being Jewish at all. So the Jews have had some time now to say, nah, this is not a sect within Judaism. This is a standalone group. And that was getting some traction by this point. 
The Jews thought that Christians taught easy believism since they laid aside the law in favor of salvation by faith. They also argued that Christianity was no part of Judaism because they believed a crucified blasphemer was the promised Messiah. That was gaining some traction. This is some of the slander, perhaps, that Jesus mentions here in verse 9. The church in Smyrna was a persecuted minority who very much felt social disapproval. They felt economic backlash. They felt slander for not participating in popular pagan worship that was the pride of their city. And they were poverty-stricken while surrounded by wealth. Just think about that. That is not at all easy to endure. Poverty itself is exhausting. Poverty surrounded by wealth is a unique form of persecution. But, Jesus says here in verse 9, they were rich in faith, where it really counts. And then you start seeing some really amazing things Jesus is saying here. He identifies the Jews as the synagogue of Satan. Jesus was saying much the same thing here to the church at Smyrna that he had said to the Jews in his own day when he said, recorded in John 8, you are of your father the devil. They have given up the worship of the true and living God. They have missed the promised Messiah who has identified himself through keeping the promises that were made concerning him, performing the very miracles that the Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would perform, and then dying and rising again three days later just as he had told his disciples three times during his earthly ministry that he would do. They still refused to believe because he didn't match their understanding of a Messiah. And so they began working at cross-purposes with God's promised one. So Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. You're doing the devil's work. Peter did as well when he tried to deny Jesus' messiahship. Remember that? Messiahs don't die, Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. The tempting work of the enemy was being done, was being offered through the mouth of Peter on that occasion. By contrast to the synagogue of Satan, these persecuted Christians were the true people of God in Smyrna, identified by Jesus' address of them. And and Jesus is saying to this group of people in these circumstances, Nothing critical whatsoever. One of two letters of the seven that have nothing critical in them. No no correction like Ephesus heard last Sunday. You've left your first love. Smyrna doesn't hear anything like that. They hear encouragement and strengthening from Jesus in the midst of their hardship. But can you imagine, can you just imagine if Jesus wrote a letter to Grace Church of DuPage and we were to read through it on a Sunday morning And there's nothing critical said to us? Wow. You would want to confirm the origin, wouldn't you? You recognize, we recognize even as we talk about our own desires with regard to proclaiming and defending the gospel, we recognize that 
We don't measure up to what we would long to see God do through us. But imagine if we could actually be confident that we heard a message from Jesus and there was no correction in it, just affirmation to press on in the truths that we're already believing. Do you hunger for experience like that as a church? I'm not suggesting that we hunger for the experience of Jesus writing us a letter. But do you hunger and thirst after a life in the body of Christ that is worthy of that kind of affirmation? That doesn't have to be a rhetorical question. Do you hunger for that along with me? Boy, I do. Don't you just long to see what the fullness of the life of the church could look like such that even as fallen human beings, we are living out the fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience. I long for us to be just praying in that direction as a body. And I would have to say, though you say this with trembling, if that requires persecution, bring it on. Bring it on. Not with some sense of spiritual bravado, with great fear and trembling. But I would rather suffer in taste of the fullness of our salvation that has been offered, made for us, completed for us in Christ than I would to live in some sort of relative ease without ever getting to the place where you've tasted of your salvation and its fullness. Are we together on that point? Amen. So we say, if that requires persecution, bring it on. But then we quickly add, God help us. How about the assignment? Jesus' assignment was pretty simply stated. To summarize it from verse 10, do not fear, be faithful. That's the substance of what he said to Smyrna. Do not fear, be faithful. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. This Jewish-Roman alliance was going to result in a, a brief but targeted season of persecution. That seems to be what this language is describing here. 10 days upon some of you. Right? Those are details to pay attention to in writing like this. This 10 days recalls the story of Daniel and his three friends who were held captive in Babylon and who were likewise tested for 10 days, eating only vegetables, drinking only water so that they wouldn't defile themselves with the king's food. So 10 days, 10 days of this, it points to a full time, that's, that's the number 10 in apocalyptic, a fullness, a full season, a full time but a limited time. We might even say a brief period of time. That seems to be what Jesus is telling Smyrna they will face. That you may be tested for 10 days and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Still, this would be a costly period of tribulation. You can see that it's going to lead to imprisonment for some, but almost certainly it's also going to result in martyrdom. 
Jesus finished here in verse 10, or yeah, in verse 10, saying, be faithful unto death. That begins to give the uh, assurance, but it's part of understanding the tribulation that they're facing. Imprisonment is coming, probably death for some. Be faithful unto death. But look at the whole word here. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, but do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why? To borrow the language of Moses, because what Satan means for evil, God means for good. Referencing Genesis 50. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. This is happening so that, verse 10, you may be tested. This brief targeted tribulation will test your faith. Sometimes it requires that. It will test your faith and prove it genuine in those who stand firm until the end. Genuine biblical faith endures even during seasons like this. And for those who survived the imprisonment or for those who weren't touched by this trial because it doesn't seem to have come on all of them, they get to see what standing firm looks like, just like that crowd that's being addressed in Hebrews 10 as they see some from among them suffer even the confiscation of their property. And yet, they comforted themselves with the reassurance that Jesus is talking about here. They knew they had a better and a lasting possession. They had something better than their house that just got taken over by the authorities because of their faith in Christ. Imagine going home today and not having a house to enter. Brothers and sisters throughout history have experienced just that. It's going on today, just not yet here. This tribulation is going to work a testing of your faith. And those who got to stand by and watch it, who weren't thrown into prison and who weren't martyred, they got to learn how to endure as a community so that they're ready when even greater tribulation comes. So much of the New Testament is written in that way to the church. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, says the Scriptures. And right here into the book of Revelation, we're seeing that still displayed, still taught. Therefore, Jesus said, don't fear it. Don't fear it. God is in complete control of your circumstances. And even if you survive those circumstances, someday your life will be required of you, and it's quite possible that it will come at the hands of suffering. Even if you survive, someday your life will be required of you, so just be faithful. Don't fear what's coming. Just be faithful and trust that the very God who saved you and made eternal promises to you will strengthen you and enable you all the way to the end. He'll enable your endurance even unto death. And the promise that Jesus makes here will be fulfilled. So don't fear. God is in complete control. 
Just be faithful. The payoff, whenever it comes, will be well worth it. You'll lose a life that was not worth saving, and you'll gain a life that is truly worth living. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the promise to every believer. It's hard to believe here and now. We trust in what we see. And we don't fully believe in what we can't see. Jesus is telling us that what we currently can't see is not only more real but more fulfilling than what we presently have. You'll lose a life that was not worth saving and gain a life that is truly worth living. And on that day, if you were given the opportunity to give up what you just became in order to return to what you so recently were, in the day that your life is required of you, if you were given the opportunity to go back, how would you respond? You would laugh at the absurdity of the thought. Right? Right? Okay, answer me on that one. That one's really important. We know that to be true from the Word of God. We can read the end of the book and see the description of what our inheritance entails. And yet, as a very good friend of mine once said, who's seated in the room this morning, but I won't embarrass him by identifying him, he said in jest on one occasion as we were reflecting on the loss of a dear friend and how so many people fear death more than anything else, he said, oh Lord, please spare me for just a moment longer from eternal bliss in your presence. That's how we live our lives so often. Spare me for just a moment longer from eternal bliss in your presence. I so long to continue on in this fallen sin-filled, persecution-laden world. But just a moment longer, just a moment longer. Friends, this world is our mission field. The clearest statement on the gospel from Scripture is God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. We love this world while we're in it, not, not loving the things of the world loving the opportunity to learn obedience in this world, even when it means suffering, just as our Savior did, just following in His steps. We love that opportunity. We don't want to set up some dualism that just despises the present world and longs only for the next. Our calling, our responsibility, our experience of God's grace and mercy and goodness happens in this world. Oh, but when the opportunity comes to move on to the next... Don't fear that. Embrace it. Love it. Cherish it. Receive it with thanksgiving to God just as your loving family would do. You're finished. You, you made it. Wow. That's what Jesus is saying these Smyrna Christians should experience. As in childbirth, the pain of delivery is quickly put aside by the sheer joy of cuddling a brand new life. That's how Jesus put it in John 16. There are painful aspects of 
enduring life in this world, but the outcome where we're headed, what we receive, our inheritance is blissful. That brings us to the assurance. Be faithful unto death, Jesus says here in verse 10, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is used in varying forms in several places in Scripture, but it's always a metaphor for eternal life. You can see that right here in verse 11. Receiving the crown of life is synonymous with not being hurt by the second death, not being hurt by eternal death. That's the death of judgment. It's mentioned here. It comes back again twice in chapter 20 and then again in chapter 21. So we'll see that description returning and we'll talk about it more at that time. The crown of life is synonymous with not being hurt by the second death. It is eternal life is what Jesus is promising here to these people. Peter referred to a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5. Paul referred to a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4. And also just to a crown by itself in 1 Corinthians 9. Jesus did that same thing, a crown all by itself, when he talked to Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11 of this very letter. James used the language crown of life in James 1. Just like here. But all these are referring to the same thing. They're referring to our eternal reward. They're referring to eternal life. The free gift of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faithfully enduring persecution and death, Jesus is saying. Faithfully endure persecution and death. And I will demonstrate the truth that for you, just as for Paul... To live is Christ and to die is gain. I'll prove that reality to you. Faithfully endure persecution even to the point of death, Jesus is saying. And I will demonstrate the truth that for you, just as for the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Jesus said in Mark 8, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. We forfeit a life not worth having and gain a life that's truly worth living. Polycarp understood this. Do you recognize his name? He was a conqueror in the verse 11 sense of the word here. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the pastor of this church in the early to mid-2nd century. We don't know the exact dates of that, but that's how he's identified on the pages of church history. And there are letters to and from and about him that are still readable today. He died for his faith in roughly A.D. 156. There's some dispute about the date It's either 155, 156, or it's sometime 167, depending on how you figure his starting points, and those are hard to name. But it seems as though the 155, 156 range is the most accurate. He was 86 years old at the time because we have his recorded final words. 
in a letter sent from the church at Smyrna, this group of folks, to Phrygia, a region that we encountered in Acts 18. Polycarp's own people, his congregation, described the events surrounding his death. Several times, the proconsul pressed him to deny Christ, threatening to release wild animals into the stadium, but, but Polycarp wouldn't do it. And now I'm quoting from one of those letters, from the letter from the church at Smyrna to Phrygia. And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent that, as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and you pretend not to know who I am, who or what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, Appoint me a day and you shall hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people, talk to them. But Polycarp said, To you I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith, for we are taught to give all due honor, which entails no injury upon ourselves, to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these people, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. And it went on like this, back and forth for a time. Then Polycarp was perhaps tied to a stake. Some say he didn't even need to be secured. He just stayed in the flame. And the letter, as the letter tells it, though, his body wouldn't burn initially. Instead, one of the executioners had to thrust a dagger through the flames and into his side, and then he finally expired, his blood eventually dousing the flame. It was also reported that the normal scent that was present at a, an event of this type wasn't there. It smelled like bread. That, those are recorded in historical documents. Polycarp is the first uh, non-canonical martyr in church history recorded. Among his last words to the proconsul were his famous quote. You may have heard it before. He said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp modeled the very charge Jesus had given to this church that he, Polycarp, later served as pastor. And he also modeled the very charge that Jesus had given to that church for us as we look back in history. We can still see in his life an example of how to listen to what Jesus said and follow it. But you know what's interesting? If we assume that Polycarp grew up in the town where he ministered, it's quite possible that he was present, possibly as old as his early 20s, at the first reading of this letter in that church. Perhaps it was these words, these very words from Jesus, this promise that strengthened Polycarp at the hour of his death. And where does the confidence come from that a God who could allow us to suffer and die at the hands of evil men like this 
could actually provide us with the sort of unending life that Jesus describes. If you thought about that question, it really is amazing that ones who are hearing the promise of eternal life are so often dying as they hear it. So we have to pose that question. Where does the confidence come from? If we're hoping to stoke one another's confidence this morning to remain faithful in times of persecution, where does the confidence come from that a God who could allow us to suffer and die at the hands of evil men can actually provide us with the sort of unending life that He's promising here? And I would just say to you, my friends, that that confidence comes from Him who is the first and the last. It comes from Him who died and came to life. It comes from Jesus who identified Himself with just what we need as this letter closes to hear and to respond to the teaching that He's given. It comes from one who Himself suffered and died at the hands of sinful men as a sacrifice for our sins. It comes from one who then rose again as the firstborn from the dead, conquering death, ensuring resurrection life for all who believe, modeling resurrection life for all who believe. So this same Jesus says as this brief letter comes to a close, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear that being courageously fearless and enduringly faithful, even in the face of death, is not foolish. It's the mark of God's presence with His people. Being courageously fearless and enduringly faithful, even in the face of death, is not foolish. Let him hear that it makes no sense to fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. It only makes sense, rather, to fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We will never go wrong by standing firm on the truth of the gospel and trusting the God of our salvation to meet us in that moment and affirm the undeniable truth of the promises that He has made to us in Christ Jesus. So my friends, that is the closing word this morning. Be faithful. Do not fear. Be faithful. Just hear those simple words from Jesus. Seasons of tribulation may be upon us and quite soon. So we need to be ready. We need to be faithful even unto death if that's the calling of any in this room or any under the sound of my voice. We need to be faithful even unto death if that's required. Trusting completely in Him who died and came to life. His way is our way when we walk by faith in Him. Trusting completely in Him who died and came to life. And also, the crown of life then will be eternally ours. That's Jesus' word this morning. Trusting in Him makes that our inheritance. 
Is that good news? Truly to live as Christ and to die as gain. At the Lord's table now, we remember the death of him who gave his life for us and in so doing gives us life. Receiving his grace to live our lives in a manner worthy of him even as that leads us into persecution and suffering. We are strengthened by our corporate worship. We're strengthened through the proclamation of the word. We are strengthened through this act of obedience, remembering Jesus' death on our behalf and knowing that it's not just about his death. It's about the resurrection life that he experienced And it is now our inheritance. Let's pray. And even as I pray, musicians and communion servers, please join me at the front. And let's remember the body and blood of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this amazing word to Smyrna. Brief as it is, Lord God, thank you for the truths that are embedded in it and are there for the encouragement and the strengthening of your church in every single generation as we face the backlash of this world against the truths of our faith, as we face the hatred of this world for the God of all creation who holds all accountable. Oh, Father, help us to be faithful proclaimers of this very truth during the days that you give us, but help us, Lord God, as well encouraged along by the church at Smyrna and by early participants in that body about whom we can still read. Help us, Lord God, to be courageously established in our faith that if it begins to cost us genuinely, our trust in you sustains us during that time. Oh, Father, deliver anyone here from thinking that we overpower that opposition in the strength of the flesh, help us to know it comes to us exclusively by trusting a crucified, risen Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.